focus on verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. At the beginning of every service in Geneva, this would be John Calvin's call to worship, a psalm that reminded his audience, reminded him as preacher, that the one who was helping them was none other than the one who had created heaven and earth. So as we turn to this psalm, I'd just like to notice a few things before we jump in. The first is that if we're honest, the Christian life is an uphill journey. That's what a, an ascent is. Ascent means you're rising, that you're climbing. Now, a journey of climbing can be quite tiring, fatiguing. So if we're honest, following Jesus, trusting in God, sometimes feels like it's hard going. It's challenging. It's demanding. But another thing to notice is that maybe because this is an uphill journey, this is a journey that's best taken together. And at the beginning of the psalm, we have, it's it's almost like um, uh, you've, you've got these two parts. You've got the individual part of the singer, or the cantor, and then you have the collective voice of the audience. So in verse one, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. So it's as if the one singer is saying, here's the line, here's the opening line. All right, people, let's hear it. And we hear it again in verse two, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us. So now, well, on one level, our faith is individual, it's personal. Our faith, however, is never meant to be practiced individual, individually or in an isolation from others. And that's one of the great challenges that we find in our current circumstance. There is much separation. But if the singer here realizes that the voice of one may be good, but the voice of many is much better. Likewise, throughout Scripture, You'll find in the New Testament more than a hundred times commands that command the people of God to do something one with another or one another. There are at least 59 different commands. 14 of them are some form of love. You know, we're told to love one another, serve one another in love, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Encourage one another deeply. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. So these refrains, whether here in the Psalm 124 or these commands that we find in in the New Testament, remind us that we are much better off together. We're stronger together, wiser together. We have the benefit of mutual encouragement. When one is down, there's another to lift them up. When one is tired, there's another to encourage them on the way. And together we are stronger than we are apart. And you can just hear this gathered multitude making their uphill journey to Jerusalem, the voice of one, and then the chorus of all sharing their voices together in God's praise. Now you might ask the question, well, why does this matter? You know, why do we need each other? Why do we, why do we need God? Well, I think what this psalm does, it does so vividly, is it tells us 
that there are many problems, many challenges, many crises, many pitfalls. There's at least four that are referenced in this short psalm. Now, in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, we often have threes, don't we? We have the three great Christian graces, faith, hope, and love. Paul tells us, and you'll have heard it at weddings, and the greatest of these is love. You'll have the three great enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember the words of Jesus when he said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, David is quite realistic here. He's giving us very visual picture languages to describe his experience and to describe experience that is common to the people of God. The first uh, scene or the first danger is in verse three, when we're told they would have swallowed us up alive. You know, there are enemies here. There are opponents. Not everyone is singing this song. Not everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet or from the same psalter. And the first scene is described as this creature that is so big that it could swallow you or me alive. Let me tell you about an Internet sensation a few years ago. Mary Lee had a Twitter following. I'm not on Twitter, but I understand roughly what it is. She had a Twitter following of 129,000. And everyone that was following her was eager to see where she would next show up, where she would next be. And they followed her up and down the East Coast. Mary Lee was about 55 years old. She was 3,456 pounds, 16 feet in length. Okay, Mary Lee was a great white shark. She had been captured and tagged. And this transponder would send out a tweet. Whenever she rose from the surface, there would be a tweet. The last time we heard from Mary Lee was on the 17th of June, 2017, a place called Beach Haven, New Jersey, not too far from where I go swimming when I'm back in America. Now, wherever Mary Lee goes, she immediately is the top of the food chain. She is the apex predator. Now, why do do I say this? When you had that transponder, it was helpful because if, you know, if you're going to Surf City, New Jersey, and Mary Lee is off the coast of Surf City, you might think a second time and you might say, well, maybe I won't go in the water today or maybe I'll go to a different beach. Why? Because a 16-foot great white shark is not to be trifled with, especially when you're in its territory. And David is saying that the enemies of God are like those sea creatures that are so big that they could eat you in one gulp. We can't for sure pinpoint. Sometimes with the Psalms of David, we can pinpoint where and who and when. Other times he just gives us these images. And this is an image of great crises, of great danger, being swallowed alive. The next of the the four scenes is in verse four, when we're told that the catastrophic flood, that the torrent of water was such that it would just sweep us off our feet and sweep us away. I'm sure we've seen the footage, whether in England or, you know, when you have monsoons in Bangladesh or India, when you see the, the power of rushing water that can just take 
anything, houses, cars, people, anything in its path. So you have the sea creature that's so big it could swallow you alive. You have the torrent that is so powerful that it would just flow over you and carry you away. He continues this theme in verse 6. At the end of verse 6, who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. So the first image is of an animal or a creature that's so big it will swallow you. This third picture is of a creature whose teeth are so sharp that it will grow you into pieces. I'll leave it up to yourself as to if you have to prefer one over the other. I don't think either are particularly attractive images. But David's painting a picture. He's painting, he's giving us a story and he's emphasizing it by repeating it. The sea creature swallowing you alive, the torrent rushing over you and, and causing you to be swept away. This, this animal whose teeth would just grind you to pieces. And then fourth and finally is the snare. A snare has been set and you are the bird. And not only are you in danger of the snare, actually, it's even worse than that. You are in the snare. You are captured. Now, the idea here is quite obvious, that a bird in a snare is very soon to be a bird in a pond. And this bird is now completely vulnerable. So you add these four pictures together, and we have many enemies, many difficulties, many challenges. So therefore, that's another reason we need each other. We need each other's fellowship. We need each other's companionship. We need each other's encouragement. And certainly that gift of encouragement, which is a spiritual gift, that is a gift that each one of us can practice. We can practice that gift. We can encourage one another. We can help each other along the way. And you might think, well, (laughs) those four images are just devastating. One of them on their own, four together, you know, Where's the hope? Where's the help? Where's the comfort? Well, I'm not an expert on Hebrew poetry, but I've read some who are experts on Hebrew poetry. And they say that Hebrew poems tend to emphasize truths based upon where those truths are located in the poem. So the best way to emphasize something in a Hebrew poem is to emphasize it at the beginning or to emphasize it at the end or alternatively, right in the middle. Now, David does all three. At the beginning, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. In the middle, not by verse number, but tech, but pretty much bang in the middle, verse six. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. And then verse eight, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So in the midst of these four pictures, what do we have? We have the Lord at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. As it were, we have him in the past. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, we have past history. We have present help. The snare is broken. We have escaped. So there is this present state that we are safe now. And then in verse 8, we have this future hope. So whether beginning, middle, and end, or past, present, or future, the Lord is personal, and the Lord is powerful. Because if you 
combine these four images of danger. Each is threatening in itself. Put them all together and it's overwhelming. Put the world together with the flesh and the devil. And we are in a very unfair fight. We are weak. We are vulnerable. We are in danger of being swallowed, being being rushed away by the torrent, being ground to bits, or being simply caught in a snare, and that's the end of the story. But you'll notice at each of these junctures, we are reminded of the Lord. And you'll know that in the Old Testament, when you see Lord in block capitals, that means his personal name. His personal name, that means that he has no beginning, he has no end. He's the God who is, the God who was, the God who will be. And he is the God who takes things personally. Remember when he revealed this name to Moses? He revealed this name to Moses in the midst of a crisis. The people of God are being oppressed. They are crying out, God has heard and God has come down. So our God takes our welfare personally. He takes it to heart. So you see, this is not a psalm of self-help. It's quite the opposite. It says you cannot help yourself. You cannot overcome these opponents. You cannot deal with these dangers. They are completely beyond you. You are literally out of your depth, over your head, in the snare, you know, swimming in the sea with Mary Lee. You are in a very vulnerable position. So we need help, and we have help. One of the great Puritan writers, and he probably the, one of the most accessible writers of the Puritan period and one of the best commentators was Thomas Manton. And he commented on this final verse, and he said this. He said, as if the psalmist said, as long as I see heaven and earth, I will never distrust. I hope in that God, which made all things out of nothing, and therefore, as long as I see these two great standing monuments of his power before me, heaven and earth, I will never be discouraged. O oh, Christian, remember when you trust God, you trust an almighty creator who is able to help. Let your case be never so desperate. God could create when he had nothing to work upon, which made one wonder. And he could create when he had nothing to work with, which is another wonder. So what Manton is saying is if if we need evidence, look around, see everything, see everything that's made, see everything on earth, see everything in heaven. And it's just like the monument in uh, St. Paul's. Remember, the there's a Latin phrase, you know, if you seek my monument, look around, Christopher Wren. There's not a tablet to Wren. Ren is saying, look, if you want to see my monument, look at St. Paul's and look at my look at this creation. And then we marvel at the architect. We marvel at his, you know, his skill. God is saying, if you want to see my monument, look around, look around at the heavens above, look around at the earth that surrounds us. And that is the measure of the power of our helper, that our helper makes something out of nothing that our helper sustains all things. This is the measure of his power. This is the measure of his authority. This is what he has done. This is what he is doing. And this is what he can and will 
truthful, personal, and powerful. And he's there at the start, he's there in the middle, and he's there at the end. He's there at the past, he's here in the present, and he's with us in the future. Our help. Not just mine, nor just yours. This is one of the Psalms where we are reminded of our corporate help and our collective comfort. We are together. We are a family. We are a body. We are a people. So many of these images are corporate images. You need me. I need you. We need each other. But first and foremost, we need the Lord. We need one with power. We need one with authority. We need one who has done the impossible because our current circumstance and situation is impossible. And Psalm 124 has been a popular psalm at times of crisis. And there are many people of God who remember these words because they remind them of the God who intervenes, the God who saves the God who transforms, David can testify. You and I can testify. And we can testify. God's a, a God who hears prayer. God is a God who answers the cry of his people. God is a God who doesn't forget, who doesn't let go, who doesn't give in. And this is the God, verse 1, who is on our side. This is the God who has not given us as a prey Verse 6, to their teeth. This is the God who breaks the snare. The impossible now possible. You remember the dialogue with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Such a promising commencement. We're told, of course, that he went away sad. There was a barrier. There was a hurdle. Something was keeping him from God. The disciples were saying to themselves, well, if this man can't be saved, he had everything going for him. He was rich. He was young. He was, he had authority. He had interest. He had a desire for eternal things. And he goes away sad. But you remember the words of Jesus. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible. With God. God makes something out of nothing. God, God does what we just cannot even imagine. And David is saying that he is not trusting. Notice there's no emphasis here on himself. No emphasis here on his authority. No emphasis here on his power or his prestige or his victory or his army. David is the author. And he's reflecting on real life events, but he's not looking to himself. He's looking beyond himself because looking to himself, all he would see are these circumstances. And when we look at ourselves, all we see are our own circumstances internally, externally, those things that we have failed and fallen short those challenges and difficulties that we simply cannot overcome, those problems that we simply cannot solve. And it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, fill in the blank. Fill in in your own challenges and difficulties here, whatever they might be, individually or collectively. 
And isn't it true that with David, if it had not been for God, we would have been helpless. We would have been hopeless. We would have been completely desolated. So we now, we, we turn back. I mentioned John Calvin to begin with. Calvin commented on verse eight. Um, again, this was, if, if Psalm 46 was Martin Luther's favorite psalm, Psalm 124 was Calvin's favorite psalm. Calvin commented, he said, David here extends to the state of the church in all ages, that which the faithful had already experienced. As I interpret the verse, he not, he only gives thanks, he not only gives thanks to God for one benefit, but affirms that the church cannot continue safe except insofar as she is protected by the hand of God. His object is to animate the children of God with the assured hope that their life is in under the divine guardianship. It is to be noticed that the faithful purged from all false confidence may betake themselves exclusively to his succor or comfort and depending upon it may fearlessly despise whatever Satan in the world may plot against them. The name of God is nothing else than God himself. Yet it tacitly conveys a significant idea, implying that as he has disclosed to us his grace by his word, we have ready access to him. So the name of God is not just a descriptor. You know, we have names, Robert, my first name, Ackroyd, my second name. These describe who I am. These describe my family. God's name is more than that. It not only just, it not only describes him, but when we invoke his name, we invoke him, all that he is, his character, his nature, his grace, his power, his authority, his wisdom, his comfort, his perseverance. It's all there. The name is everything. And Calvin is saying that's the name that we invoke because we need all of God. We need his wisdom because we don't have it. We need his strength because we are weak. We need his comfort because we are constantly overwhelmed, constantly overcome. And that is the ready access that we have. We have this throne of grace. We have this ready access to our God and Father through his Son, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that opening refrain, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Now, as an American, as someone who loves history, I'm I'm often reminded of scenes from American history. So I'm afraid if you know you're gonna if you're gonna hear me preach, you're gonna hear some American examples. Well, in the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was often asked, President Lincoln, is God on our side? And he responded to one of his uh, questioners with a short letter. He said, dear sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Now, David is presupposing that God is on our side. But how can we know? How can you know? How can we know together whether God is on our side? Or as Lincoln rephrases it, we must need to know that we are on his side. He is always right. He is always good. 
he is always victorious. He will ultimately succeed where everyone else and everything else fails. Last week, we were going through Romans 8, and I just want to remind ourselves of that great link verse that connects 1 to 4 with Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things, verse 31 in Romans 8, if God is for us? David said, if God, if the Lord had not been on our side. He's saying the exact same thing as Paul, but in, in different words. If God is for us, Paul says, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, David had a personal relationship with God. David had personal faith. He had personal experience. He could say, the Lord is my shepherd. That's his material. He could identify and connect himself. There is that power of personal possessive pronouns. The Lord is mine. He's also yours. He also, therefore, is ours. But what Paul is saying to us in Romans 8 what David is saying to us in Psalm 124 is that we can be certain that we are on God's side. We can be certain that he is on our side when we take him at his word. And in particular, when our faith and trust is in his son. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all today or this weekend, many people, and this is a remarkable thing that we still must be thankful for, on television, on radio, countless services, men and women are remembering these events, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And we know that these are not just scenes from 2,000 years ago. These, for us, are the foundation of our hope, the foundation of our lives, the foundation of our confidence. This is how we know that God is for us. This is how we know that we are on his side and he is on our side because it all concerns his son. It's about Jesus from the beginning to the middle and to the end. David was able to articulate his faith from beginning, middle, and end. He recognized the enemies were many and varied. The challenges were complex and dangerous. And our situation is exactly the same. Left to our own devices, left to our own strength, left to our own wisdom, we would be helpless, we would be hopeless, we would be swallowed, washed away, ground to bits, and trapped. But not so with the Lord. I was reminded of these opening words of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Westminster Shorter Catechism was about almost a 100 years later, but in the middle of the 16th century, the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism begins like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way 
that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are united to him through faith in his son. We have a relationship, a permanent relationship with him through his son. And in that relationship, we have comfort and we have strength and we have help and we have hope. So today and tomorrow and this week and next month, when the crisis comes individually, as a family, as a church family, look around and see all that God has created. Look around and see all that he is sustaining and consider those magnificent events of 2,000 years ago, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. These are not feelings. These are facts. And these point us to the one who made, who sustains, and who redeems all things. This is our hope. This is our help. This is our comfort. This is our strength. He was there in the past. He's here today. And he will be with us in the future. If your faith is not yet in him, may you find that your only hope and that your only comfort is found in none other than Jesus Christ, the son of God. Because in so doing, you will have a security that will never be lost. You will have a salvation that can never be taken away. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen. Let's join our hearts again in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we acknowledge you that you are good and great, that you are powerful and personal. We thank you for this testimony of David, this testimony not of his own experience, but his this testimony of your faithfulness to him and to his people. We thank you that you are for us, not against us. You are with us. You want us to know you, to love you, to serve you. You want us to make you known to others. And we thank you that in this day and age that there are still so many points of contact, whether at Christmas time, people singing the carols of the season or at Easter time, reading these magnificent texts of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are confident, Lord, that you are, you remain powerful. You can make something out of nothing. You can bring life out of death. You can bring darkness out of, you can bring light out of darkness. You can bring hope out of despair. You can bring peace out of conflict. You have done, you do, and you are able to do all is impossible to us for nothing is impossible with you. Lord, hear us, help us, do us good, strengthen us for the task, whatever this week might hold. Be the one that holds us, that keeps us, that protects and preserves. And may our strength, our comfort, and our confidence come from you, the Lord, your name, the maker of heaven and earth. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.